people see the three boats coming. By the time they reach land, people have already begun to gather on the Capernaum shore. Jesus binds his hair back and bends to help Peter and Andrew drag their boat up on the shore. They stow the oars and other equipment. The disciples have just begun to wash the boat's interior when a small red-faced man throws himself through the crowd and falls at Jesus' feet. Master, he pants. Jairus, says Jesus, sopping in his robes. What's the matter? He knows the man. He's often seen Jairus arrange worship in the Capernaum synagogue. Master, my, my, my child is dying. Every breath is weaker than before. She's dying right now. Please come and lay your hands on her. And without a word, Jesus goes with him. Jairus jumps up and, and pleads with the people to move. Then he and Jesus and the disciples and most of the multitude begin to flow through the streets toward high ground at the synagogue. Hurry, hurry, Jairus says, pumping his arms. Get out of our way, hurry. Suddenly, Jesus stops. Unaware, Jairus continues to plow forward, but Jesus is looking at the crowds. Who touched me? He says. Peter releases a harsh laugh. Touched you? This is a mob. Who didn't touch you? Jesus ignores the ridicule and shouts, Who touched my tunic just now? I felt the power go out of me. Up ahead, Jairus notices that the crowd has come to a complete halt. He's struggling helplessly up against a, a human wall. Then he sees that the master is no longer with him, that the multitude is watching Jesus in another exchange altogether. Who touched me? People have withdrawn from Jesus, making a circle of space before him. And a thin, frightened woman crouches down in the space, a wasted body covered with the sores of ill-nourishment. Jesus, Jairus calls, there's no time. My daughter has no time left. But Jesus' back is turned. He's listening to the woman whose words rush out as if she were arguing for her life. I've been bleeding for 12 years and nothing has stopped the flow. Nothing, not even the doctors. I've spent everything I had on the doctors and they only made me worse. But then I saw you coming across the lake this morning and I thought, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I will be made well. And abruptly she pauses. She shrinks backward in alarm. Jesus has taken a step toward her and dropped to one knee. So I touched your tunic, you see, she breathes, her eyes terrified. Jesus stretches his hands toward her face, and I'm, I'm well. I'm not bleeding anymore. Jesus draws the woman's gray face to his shoulder, embracing her. Daughter, he whispers, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. When Jesus rises and walks toward Jairus again, the small man can not even look at him. 
Neither is he trying to fight the crowds toward his house anymore. His face is white, drained of expression, his eyes sightless. Another man speaks to Jesus with an air of superiority. No, no need. You might as well go on your way. The man says Jairus' daughter is, is dead. Blankly, Jairus looks here and there as if he had lost something. But Jesus seizes Jairus by the shoulders and glaring at the messenger says, Jairus, do not be afraid. Do you hear me? Just believe. Now is the time for believing. Jesus takes Jairus' elbow and leads him with great strides toward the house. The master's eyes flash like weapons in the sunlight. And when they approach the house, they they hear loud grieving inside. Women sit in the courtyard, blowing on the wooden pipes of sorrow and wailing as loud as they can. Jairus' strength fades, and he pulls back. But Jesus still leads him forward into the house. Jesus cries, stop this noise. The child is not dead, but sleeping. They are professional mourners. They are paid to be sad, and they think they know their business. They take just an instant to process what Jesus has said, and then they break into scornful laughter. But Jesus' eyes burn with an even more fiery heat. He releases Jairus and physically pushes the mourners out of the house, and he calls for Peter, James, and John to join him, and then he shuts the door. And at once... The features of the master change. Where is the child? He asks. The mother wipes her face and answers, This way. Today we continue our sermon series called Jesus Is. We've been walking through the Gospel of Mark exploring the various characteristics of Mark, uh, of, of Jesus. Through this gospel of Mark, we've been looking at how Jesus is empowering, how Jesus is willing, Jesus is peace, and today we continue how Jesus is life. He is the life of healing and restoration. He is a life of a, a future and a promise. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the bread of life and the living water, the bare necessities of life. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the giver of life, new life, real life, true life, life and life to the full. He always is and always has been the author, the maker, the creator of life who sustains it, renews it, and protects it, especially for those most most vulnerable, like the bleeding woman, pained and poor, lonely and excluded, like the father, Jairus, red-faced and panicked, heart-racing, anxiety through the roof, not an ounce of peace, like his little girl dying in her bed, beyond all human hope. Jesus is still life. Like even when hopes are dashed, and the outlook is bleak, and and faith seems hard to come by. Jesus is still alive. Even when the diagnosis is terminal, Jesus is still alive. Even when you can't stand where you're at and you can't see a way through, Jesus is still alive. Even when absolutely nothing is going according to your plan, Jesus is still alive. Jesus is still alive even when a father's heart stops at the news, your daughter is dead. 
Why bother the teacher anymore? She's dead. Death is oppressive, all-powerful. It's in control. Death has the final say, but believe it or not, Jesus is still life. And overhearing what they said, Jesus told Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. You see, Jairus can no longer ask for healing. Jesus challenges him to overcome his fear and ask for his daughter to be raised from the dead. You must remember who you're with here and who is with you, Jesus, who is life. But what happens next? What will come of his daughter if this Jesus is empowering and willing and peace? Is this something that he can handle? And what more does it reveal about who Jesus is? What is next in the story? If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, verse 37. You can follow along on your paperback, leather-bound Bibles, or your, your Bible app on your phone, or the screen, or even the Journey app. But let's read this together. In Mark chapter 5, we're going to go through, we're going to start at 37. It says, He, Jesus, did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Why? Why only these three? I don't, I don't know, but they seem to be a part of Jesus' inner circle. And sure, yeah, I, I, maybe that's a, one of the reasons, but I think it also reminds us of later on down the road at the Garden of Gethsemane. And those three, Peter, James, and John, will be with Jesus on that agonizing night before his crucifixion. So keep that in mind, the garden, the crucifixion, the events of the Passion. Verse 38 continues, When they came to the house of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. It was customary. The loud crying, the wailing, the commotion with flute players, professional mourners hired for the occasion. It's tense. It's heart-wrenching. The ancient historian Josephus writes, even the poorest in Israel do not hire less than two flute players and one wailing woman. It looked a lot different than my first funeral sermon. I met a complete stranger, a man at Pete's Coffee in Ventura, and he had just lost his son, 20 or 21 years old, OD, I think, but he left behind a three-year-old son. It's tragic, right? The whole situation was just a, a mess. And so I sit there and I, I talk with him and I go through all of the things, learning about his son's life and putting together a funeral sermon, the whole events of everything. But I forgot to ask one critical question. What should I wear? Right? And it sounds like meaningless, right? But sometimes like some memorial services, everyone's going to wear a Hawaiian shirt or everyone's going to like dress real casual or everyone's going to dress up in tuxedos and to the tee. So I figured I don't want to be underdressed, so I might as well like wear the nicest clothes I have. And so I wore like a button-up, and I wore like a vest and a suit jacket over that. I wore like really tight pants and cowboy boots. I don't know why I wore cowboy boots, probably because I didn't have any nice shoes, and maybe I was going through like a phase or something. But I get there, and it's a really hot day, like the hottest day of the year, and it's in this small, cramped, multi-purpose room. 
and Pilates had just gotten out, and this is where we're going to do the service. It's already steamy in there, and it's cramped. There's a, a couple of rows of plastic chairs, and so I begin to do the, the funeral sermon, talking about, you know, how this life was gone too soon, snuffed out, but the hope of Jesus, and the promise of the resurrection, and life, and all that stuff. And then out of the corner of my eye, I see a little kid in a stroller, probably like one, one and a half, maybe two years tops. He slinks out of the stroller and his parents have no idea what's going on and he starts to like remove his clothes. It's too hot, right? It's steamy, it's stuffy in here, it's hot. He starts taking off his clothes all the way down to his diaper. And then his parents finally realize what's going on, and the kid just bolts, just starts running and screaming and laughing, running around the, the row of chairs in this cramped, tight, hot, multi-purpose room. And I'm trying to, like, stay focused on Jesus is the resurrection and the life and all this, and I'm like, I can't. But finally, after two laps, one lap, two lap, the dad with the ponytail grabs the kid and secures him tightly in the stroller again. So I go on with the message talking about grief, loss, and death, and dying, and then again, Houdini in a diaper breaks free. <laughs> but this time, with a fully loaded diaper. And so you can imagine this room that's already steamy and hot and cramped. I've got sweat on my brow and running down my back. And here comes Houdini in a diaper, one lap, two lap, stinking up the place like burnt hair and Indian food and digested broccoli disgusting, right? And the kid's just laughing and screaming the whole entire time. And it was a profound reminder for me of life right in the middle of death. And I think that as Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly, he also sees life. For that is who he is. Life. And it is even in death what he brings. The change in the atmosphere. Verse 39 says, He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. Uh, Jesus says the girl is asleep, but we just heard that the girl is dead. So what is it? Is she asleep or is she dead? Yes. I think what Jesus is getting at here is that death is called sleep, not to pretend that it's not real, but to deny that it is ultimate. Verse 40 says, But they laughed at him, the hired mourners, the professional experts on death. They, they just laugh at him in scorn. And after he put them all out, eh, the Greek is ekbalo, and it actually means something like he threw them out with force. He took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. And in the ancient Mediterranean world, without embalming or refrigeration facilities, the dead were often buried on the same day that they died. So as the preparations are being made, I imagine the mother leading them to a back room where a single candle burns. The girl has been clothed in clean linen. Her large eyes are closed. The eyelids fringed with a rich black lash. Her eyebrows are high, beautifully etched, but her cheeks are alabaster, and her fingertips a lily white. 
Jesus steps up to her pallet bed. And verse 41 says, He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum. It's not a magic word. It's not hocus pocus or expelliarmus. It's just plain old Aramaic speech that anyone would use to wake someone from sleep. Talitha kum. Little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old, and at this, they were completely astonished. I imagine her as if she were waking from sleep, opening her eyes and looking all at the faces around her, smiling, and I'm sure confused. Jairus must have fallen to his knees, weeping. Abba, she says, what's the matter? I thought death was supposed to be all-powerful, in control. I thought it was the boss. I thought that death has the final say. But Jesus walks into the room, takes her by the hand. Talitha kum, rise and shine. Jesus is far more powerful than death, and clearly he's not afraid of it. He, he brings this girl back to life, simple as if waking for school. But she was dead, mere hours from, from being put into the grave. And touching a corpse, according to Numbers 19, would make you ritually unclean. But as Jesus was not defiled by the touch of the unclean, bleeding woman, he's not defiled by touching a corpse. Their touch does not communicate defilement. His touch communicates holiness and restoration to life. Wherever Jesus shows up, he brings life because his presence is is life. Okay, but wait a second. Like, I know you're reading this closely with me. And so, like, the similarities between these two stories, the bleeding woman and Jairus' dead daughter, the similarities are just jumping off the page, right? All these immediately's, immediately the woman's bleeding stopped, immediately the girl stood up, and there's something powerful in both stories about Jesus' touch. Jairus says, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And from the bleeding woman, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. How about this falling at Jesus' feet? Just as Jairus fell at his feet, so too the bleeding woman fell at his feet. What of the 12 years? This woman was bleeding for 12 years. The girl was 12 years old. So it's strange to think, isn't it, that 12 years ago, this woman became ill and began her descent down the path of disease and affliction toward death. At the same time, a little girl was born to Jairus and his wife and began the journey to life. Twelve years later, both are at the point of destruction when Jesus comes across their path. It's almost like these stories are to be read in light of each other. And what are the differences that are just too coincidental to be coincidences. Like the coincidental differences between the bleeding woman and Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. Jairus is named, is male, wealthy, the leader of a synagogue, a parent concerned about his sick daughter who approaches Jesus publicly to ask for healing for his daughter. But the woman is nameless, Poor, excluded from the synagogue. She has no children and can have none, and she approaches Jesus covertly. 
secretly. I can't get over the connections. Jairus and the bleeding woman both come to Jesus in desperation. Both have expressed faith. Both believe that Jesus is able to do the impossible. Both are rewarded. These stories are clearly connected. They're stuck together like a sweet onion chicken teriyaki sandwich or like a BLT. Or better yet, since it's the Gospel of Mark, we might as well call it a Markin sandwich. I know it sounds cheesy, no pun intended, but it's actually the theological term for this happening. And it happens all over Mark's gospel. Now, a Markin sandwich is not the $5 foot long from Subway. In fact, I just checked, you can't even get a six incher for less than $5.49 plus tax. But a Markin sandwich is a literary theological technique whereby Mark interrupts a story with what appears to be an unrelated story, and yet these stories are interrelated and have a big theological point to make. In other words, these stories are stuck together like a peanut butter and tuna fish sandwich with a big message to make. So for this story, Mark chapter 5, the ciabatta bread, the beginning and the end, the opening and the close of this story is Jairus, and his daughter. And stuffed inside like a BLT is the story of this bleeding woman. Okay, but like, what's the point then of this Markin sandwich? What are these two seemingly unconnected but actually connected stories communicating? The truth about who Jesus is. How Jesus is life. Oh, like you thought this was a story about a bleeding woman and a dead girl. Of course it is, but it's so much more about Jesus. How Jesus' resurrection is the victory over the power of sin and death and the fear that it injects into human life. The bleeding woman and Jairus' daughter are images of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. As the bleeding woman suffered, so too Jesus suffered. As Jairus' daughter experienced death, so too Jesus experienced death, but the story doesn't end there. As Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead, so too Jesus was raised from the dead. It's a powerful foreshadowing of the death and resurrection of Jesus as two nameless women are restored to life to become life givers. Do not be afraid. Just believe. In what? In whom? In Jesus who is life, the one crucified and resurrected. Even when hopes are dashed and the outlook is bleak and faith seems hard to come by, even when the diagnosis is terminal, even when you can't stand where you're at and you can't see a way through, even when absolutely nothing is going according to your plan, even when your heart stops at the news unraveling before you, even when it's your child, your parent, your friend, your loved one, unresponsive, unbreathing, no pulse. Don't be afraid, just believe. In Jesus, who is life, who was crucified and resurrected. It sounds like such a platitude, though, like empty well-wishing. Don't be afraid. Just believe. But that actually takes a lot of trust and a lot of hope. It's the trust and hope that life goes on beyond death because of Jesus. 
I asked one of the bravest women that I know, how do you understand hope? And how have you seen it in your life? And she said, oh, there's always hope. As long as you're alive, there's always hope. And she said it so nonchalantly, but so assuredly, and this coming from a sister whose brother died in a plane crash, and a mother who buried her 17-year-old son. Oh, there's always hope. I mean, like, how, how do I talk about a parent with a child raised from the dead when there are parents who haven't had that? I just hear her words. Oh, there's always hope. Eternal hope for beyond. Verse 43 says, He, Jesus, gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Like she's hungry, right? And a hot meal brings the story back to earth. No, 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 not Subway. She just died. Like hook her up with Wood Ranch or something good, right? Food brings her back to the practical needs and it reintegrates her into the social world of the living. But what about this like don't tell anyone stuff? Well, Jesus' order in the Gospel of Mark here, it seems to be related to what's called the Messianic secret, where in the Gospel of Mark, you cannot fully know who Jesus is until you know the crucified and resurrected Jesus. Like, it's not the signs and the miracles that prove Jesus to be Savior Messiah, but it's his saving death and his resurrection, for his identity is not made fully known until his death and resurrection. It's not merely the miracles. It's his own suffering and death and resurrection that reveal who Jesus is. But sure, he's the one with authority over nature and demons. Yes, he demonstrates his authority over disease and death. Of course, he's the Lord of the wind and the waves and the sea, overcomer of every obstacle and challenge. He's the champion of the outcasts and the exiled, sensitive to the smallest details of life. And it all comes together only because of his saving death and resurrection for the entire cosmos. For Jesus is life. He is the life of healing and restoration. He is the life of a future and a promise. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the bread of life and the living water, the bare necessities of life. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the giver of life, new life, real life, true life, and life to the full. He always was and always has been the author, the maker, the creator of life who sustains it and renews it and protects it, especially for those most vulnerable. And he calls us to do the same. I mean, 5,000 thousand babies already saved up to a 70% drop of, in abortions on Wednesdays and Sundays, the days of concentrated prayer, 157,000 people prayer walking, 920 plus partnering churches, 50 plus abortion workers feeling compelled to leave the industry, 3,800 people connecting as volunteers and mentors, orphan care and sidewalk outreach teams. What an incredible organization of life uniting and mobilizing the church to create a culture of love and life to bring an end to abortion and the orphan crisis. For the same Jesus who restores and raises the dead is doing the very same in our day and age right here in Ventura County, right now in this church congregation right here in our, in our Pleasant Valley. So what an awesome opportunity we have to be a part of it and to share in the life of who Jesus is. 
What a privilege it is to be a part of healing and restoration. To be a part of a future and a promise. To be led by the way, the truth, and the life. Nourished by the bread of life and the living water. Hoping in the resurrection and the life. Walking in new life, real life, true life. Life and life to the full. Following the author, the maker, the creator of life. To sustain it, renew it, and protect it. Especially for those most vulnerable. I don't know about you, but I love life. I don't know about you, but I love life. From a baby's first breath to an old man's last. Fermented milk from a forgotten baby bottle under the couch. Wobbly handlebars and skinned up knees. Making it home just a tick before curfew. A first kiss that feels electric. Handed a paper for time served in classrooms and books with the hope that you go and make something of yourself. An eight to five. And a two-week vacation for the next 40 years. Endless diapers and sleepless nights. And before you catch your breath, it's gone. You blink and they've grown. The mirror shines back, the marks of true beauty, jagged lines across the brow and sagging lids. They tell the stories of time and dedication and lessons learned, wrinkles and gray hair and accolade, an achievement of making it this far, a bedpan. And being spoon-fed by nice hospice nurses. From a baby's first breath to an old man's last, all the treasures between, all a gift from God. And it's strange to me that, that this is something that our world sees as expendable. But perhaps the closer we come to know and love Jesus, the closer we come to know and love life, and perhaps the closer we come to know and love life, the closer we come to know and love Jesus. Would you pray with me? We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for the gift of life that you have breathed into us. Help us to be life givers who are fearless about what it means to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray.